and welcome to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters have been doing this for way too long. Talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. It's a family affair. It's a family affair. It's a family affair. It's a family affair. As always, I am impressed by your musical knowledge because I have never heard of that song. <laughs> it and, was going to be that, which is Family Affair by Sly and the Family Stone, or We Are Family. I got my sisters and me. But I felt like I wasn't going to hit that one quite as well as you just heard. So. It's a little hard to hit that high note. It still sounded good. Yeah, that yeah. is DM Dave, the rock and roll DM, singing about, I guess, about player motivation, player engagement. I don't know. It's a family affair. I, I, some of these, I'm really stretching my my ability to shoehorn a, a song into my intro. <laughs> it, is, it, is it basically that we that we are a family at the table? And kind like of, a family, right? sometimes someone checks out, and you got to try to keep everyone engaged with your well, game. as the great enlightened teacher Ram Das said uh, if you want to know how far along you are in your spiritual journey go visit your family and you will very quickly know how far along you are on said path so I feel <laughs> in the game table uh, it's like that or like in a band where it's these all of these personalities all vying for whatever with all of these these motivations behind it as well as the motivations for the task at hand such as gaming mm, there we go deep deep right? deep. Yeah. That's deeper than i expected to go it's a family affair <laughs> and that is so that, that does dovetail very well into tonight's topic the, the topic we're looking to discuss which is, you know, basically kind of keep everyone involved at the game table. You might have seen a few weeks ago, we had an article about this. That article, if you want to go check it out, is six ways to get everyone at the game table more involved. Tony wrote that. And it's really about how do you keep everyone at the game table involved in what's going on there so you don't have players checking out, so the shy players aren't getting lost on the phones. But how do you keep them all there and present? I mean, is that is that kind of the essence of it, Tony? It is, and it can be really tricky sometimes, especially if you're online, because it, it, it's harder to read. You're in person, you can kind of read all the body language much easier. You can look at everybody and be like, okay, somebody's been on their phone, someone's, you know, doing something else, versus you could bring everybody in there more more fluidly. But they're online, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a crapshoot now. And then they can turn their monitor off for a second, they're off doing something. You, you know, or your the one screen is popping up with the person that's talking and you're focused on that. It's it's more it's got more moving parts. Yeah, I'll say the uh, that's right, Tone, because we've talked about this pretty much for the entire life of the podcast so far since we kind of started as we were entering into the world of virtual gaming and. It offers all those benefits, but yeah, there are certain things that we didn't even, I don't even think we necessarily realized when we were playing at the table. We kind of just took it almost for granted. Some of the the social cueing that occurs when you're just in front of someone. And in, in a gaming situation, I think it comes out even more in some ways. Mm -hmm. 
And I mean, it really, it, it, it gets accentuated, I think, when we go online. But it's an issue even, it's an issue even at the table. I mean, it's been an issue from the dawn of role-playing games. Sure. The idea of you have a couple players who tend to drive your action and get really caught up in the plot, and other players who kind of t- tend to maybe just become part of the wallpaper, and other players who would like to be driving more, but maybe they don't feel like they get to. And you wind up with an uneven player experience. Some players are really engaged. Other players aren't more aren't really engaged. They're not as involved as you'd like them to be. And you know, today we want to talk about it. So how can you make sure everyone at the game table stays more involved and make sure you're engaging them and, t- and tying into what your players really want? And also, how do you make sure everyone gets seen and heard and gets to participate, right? So what do you think, you know, before we get into how we solve this, why don't we talk a little bit about what causes it? So when you have players at the table who are getting uninvolved, they're getting unengaged, what do you think's going on there? There could be a lot of things that cause that. You could have somebody who's not following the plot. They don't really feel invested in the plot. Perhaps some of the people are doing all the heavy lifting. And maybe they're not disinterested, but they're like, okay, these guys have that. They're kind of like waiting for a moment where they're needed. Mm. Yeah. I think uh, a couple things could be. Uh, I agree with everything you just said, Tom, but there are a couple times that I've seen it both when I'm running and when I'm the player as well. Uh, Obviously, anytime that there's more going on in the story. So I'm going to borrow a a phrase from Mike Shea, uh, the lazy DM. Uh, He always talks about a strong start um, for any game, not just, you know, certain ones. But that first something is happening. And I have found that any game where I can drop to a level of action, whether that's action in terms of combat or something, or just action in something is occurring that requires you to pay attention and deal with it, people obviously are more engaged. If it's some of that, you know, you always have that time where some sessions open at the campfire in the morning because they long rested. And that's fine. But there needs to be something that starts to engage them. Um, So I've even started to play around with starting to find out what were they doing during the long rest or what are they doing this morning before what do you want to do for the day? It's something that focuses them into saying, oh, I need to answer a question. I need to do something. So they need to engage themselves right off the bat. And they need to answer a question about what their character is doing. So it engages them both in the game, but also in the role play, right? Oh, absolutely. Directly looking at them and saying, what are you doing? And I've started to do this uh, in all my games where I will literally go around the table. Okay, what are you, you know, if we're on roll 20, I'll go right, left to right. And what is, what is Phineas doing? What is Hawk doing? What is little one doing? Unless there's something specific that we've already decided, okay, now we're heading off to the castle. Yeah. I've had a lot of success where you give them the opportunity to do that. And then perhaps you mentioned something unexpected that occurred during this time, specifically with this character. Perhaps they had success with their training. They had a dream uh, while they were doing something else. They got a clue, something that effect. And that has everyone paying attention. It's really though, the whole game is a lot like writing an article because you gotta, I do agree with that strong start. You gotta hook them in the beginning. Mm. They need to kind of know where we're going in this story. You don't want to be in the middle of it going, why are we here? Yeah, it's like the Stephen King thing where the first sentence should pretty much draw them in right off the bat. It should Mm -hmm. punch them right in the gut, right off the bat. 
you know, make them say, wait, what the hell is that? I need to know more. Yeah. yeah. And it really is. It's it's really writing a short story more than it is. Or it's really writing almost a play more than it is writing a uh, writing a novel. You don't have a lot of time to waste with kind of backstory and stuff that leaves the players unengaged. You really got to hook them right off the bat. Yeah. And Tone, I would I would throw it back there because I've used that many times, but it kind of falls into some of the other things that we've talked about with getting people engaged at the table. So things like focusing on players. So you were just saying something like the training or a dream, which is awesome because it does engage, but oftentimes it's engaging a couple players. It's engaging your focus player. So the person that the dream, you had this dream, right? Then it's going to engage your storytellers and your note takers and your people who are really invested in everything. You're always going to have somebody like that at the table that's always engaged in something. But it's going to have the audience members and some of the other people start to say, "Okay, I'm still listening, but maybe I'm going to kind of check out here until I hear that I'm needed. Like you said earlier, what do you think about that? I think uh, you definitely can draw the people in with other parts of other character stories. Hopefully they just don't care about their story or perhaps they're involved in the story. (laughs) I mean, fingers crossed here Um, in those kind of situations where that, that that's pregame and I would keep that all loose. And if someone's not participating in that entire group event, so to speak, then it's probably like, I see Dave does this a lot. He talks to he engages that one player who's been really quiet. Be like, okay, I know what the four of you guys are doing. What are, what are you doing right now? That's usually in the actual game itself. I wouldn't do the initiative tracking thing unless you're in a specific action scene. Then if there's an action scene, then that's role play based. Then I put them in the tracker and then everybody can get their action before someone like talks to the guy, grabs the thing, stabs someone else. And, <laughs> and I'm standing here. I'm like, what? wait, I haven't opened the letter yet. <laughs> well, actually, so the initiative tracker thing, a lot of our listeners might not have read the articles. Why don't you tell them what you mean by that? So if you get in a situation where there's, um, you can solve a problem with role play or it's a very role play heavy scenario. Then rather than having one person like run away with it out of, like completely, because then sometimes the more dominant players, the more involved, the excited ones to jump in head first, just they're like doing things. So like, I do this yeah. and I do this and I do this. And then where do you cap them? So you put them in the initiative order. You're like, okay, we're going by initiative or we just got you in here left to right. How we're doing this in zoom and, you're going to do this. Okay, next, next, next. And that gives everybody an opportunity to participate in the event. I will say that helped greatly because uh, I started seeing you play with that in the Storm Kings campaign. And because you had a lot of strong personalities, you had a lot of people who didn't mind role playing. And that is awesome and can also become a complete clusterfuck. Right. As we saw, because now everyone's trying to jump in and you have people docking out and all of this. So, yeah, breaking that up, especially like in um, the last, in essence, the last scene, right, when we had the big uh, reveal in the Storm Giants court, where it was all role play, pretty much. But we went boom, 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 boom. Well, it was all role play. I mean, there was certainly a dragon we fought. Well, there was. Yeah, there were fights. But you know what I mean? And even if it was a matter of when role play was happening, let's say Zhang's turn came up, it still gave you the chance to say, 
I'm going to let them continue doing their thing, but I would like to look for X, Y, Z, or I want to ready an action to in case this. Happens. So you're still involved in terms of that that initiative count, just like we do in combat, where oh, I'm on deck. What am I doing? And it might not be a spell or an attack, but what am I doing to add to this? Yeah, and I mean, I use that a lot in the, uh, especially in the um, Call of Cthulhu game, mm-hmm. because it's a because that's one where you're investigating. So you have, you know, you'll have five players in a conversation with a witness, or you know, and and you want to give everyone a chance to do something. So you got to come back and hit. I sometimes go through initiative order, but other times it's just kind of trying to pay attention to who hasn't told me they're doing anything. Mm. You know, okay, we people have talked for a little bit. Things have happened. You know, actions are being taken. You like, well, okay, so what's your character doing right now to a player who maybe hasn't mentioned it yet? And that just, yeah, keeps I'm doing that because I want everyone to have a role. And I don't want the couple like I don't want a couple more powerful role players to kind of push everyone else out. Also, you know, everyone's got different skills and you want everyone to have a chance to use their skills, especially in Call of Cthulhu, because that's how you advance. Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) If you don't have a skill, fuck you. That's it. That's that's their answer. (laughs) assistant with no mercy (laughs) even the furniture can kill you it's a meme the furniture the stairs yes as we've discussed call cthulhu is quite deadly but even but in there you know i want to what's interesting too because in call cthulhu the advancement system is what skills have you did you successfully use during the camp during the adventure and then you get to roll to it to basically up which makes complete sense it does it makes complete sense right because you get better at what you do yeah absolutely no, I really to, like the system in that way. Yeah, yeah and that is, that is a lot of fun in the system, but it means that you're basically making sure that everyone has a chance to use skills just because if you don't, they don't get to advance. Yeah. You know, you you need to leave them. So in that kind of leaves the role-playing opening because you have to do it because otherwise you're letting the person who's dominating basically essentially run up XP and their version of XP. And in a way, aside from, I mean, if you built certain, like Call of Cthulhu and those, t- I think most skill-based systems in that way, I can't say for certain, but I know generally in Call of Cthulhu with this, uh, that does help in terms of trying to find that balance because no one, as opposed to something like 5e, like if you have a bard like Roderick, let's say, in the party, who has all of this ability to get really good at all these skills and then so many skills, as we've talked about, are so charisma-based, it kind of behooves the party to start to lean on that person for yeah. more of the thing, like we've talked about, right? Which, it's what it is. But in Call of Cthulhu, you can't be good at everything. It ain't happening. So you have to work together, and you kind of, you are almost forced to have a balanced party or you're going to make a new character because you're probably going to die. Right. Cause you can, yeah. you're great. You're great with languages, but you can't shoot a gun. You go, you got Maggie's <laughs> drawers, right? Like you can't shoot. So you're dead. I, you know, need some shooters on the team. Where that apply? I think D and D where this could be a sticking point is that sure. The rogue or the bard will have a fantastic skill set. But the other players, they don't have such a wide arsenal of abilities like that. You don't want to leave them out of those role-playing scenarios. I know sometimes it's hard, like we dealt with in Storm King's Thunder, like, well, they're talking, and I'm not a charisma character, so shut your pie hole or you'll screw something up. Like, <laughs> well, I'm trying to convince them, and I made a point. And then Dave made a point. Warrior, 
da. Nope, there's no way that we're going to add anything intelligent whatsoever. Right. right. Well, I mean, say. There's not much more the DM can do to discourage engagement than to have the non-charisma character contribute to the conversation and then say, okay, oh, great, now make me a charisma roll. Because <laughs> you're basically just punishing him for getting involved. <laughs> It, it's yeah. like I'm in, I'm in Call of Cthulhu and I'm trying to read a book. Just don't do it. Don't touch the book. <laughs> but uh, th- the the point that led us down this whole thorn was a good one because we've all started. I've I've noticed specifically that we all three of us have started to do it more and it, or at least attempted to do it more because you're always going to lose it at times, especially when a lot of stuff is going on. But there's always that one where if someone's not contributing yet, if they haven't said anything for you know, a little bit, you go, oh, okay, like, for instance, with Call of Cthulhu, a lot of times you'll call on either Shannon's character or Maud, Bonnie's character, because Maud is usually going doing some crazy-ass thing, because it's one of her characters, and Shannon is generally more of a quiet role player, so you want to make sure that you're engaging them, and whatever they want to do with that is fine, but you're at least attempting to say, hey, you have the you have the floor if you want to take it, Right. You know, and part of the thing that really even moved me to do that more was, um, I don't remember if it was if it was Bonnie or, but basically I had a player in the Woodstock Wanderers game where I felt like, okay, we're rolling through the players who want to role play are role playing, the players who kind of like want to be more wallflowers are being wallflowerish, and it came up that no, some of the players who I thought wanted to be didn't want to be called on actually did want to be more engaged, but they weren't finding opportunities, they didn't feel like they had the chance to speak up and get involved. Right. And that to me has always been like when you hear that, like there's a player who wanted to role play more and they didn't feel like they had the opportunity to as a DM. That's like a real that's a real gut punch, you yeah. know, and yeah. you got to slow down some. And, that, and that's kind of part of what also made me do that more was trying to make sure everyone gets a chance to get involved in the role play, because if they don't, you know, you're kind of discouraging them from being engaged. Yeah. So the, that idea about the initiative order, even outside of combat or something like it, it doesn't have to be specifically the initiative order, but something that you are going around the table. You, 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 you. Yeah, yeah is, it, is very important and very helpful. Essentially calling, giving, making sure everyone has a chance to do something in every scene. You know, it may be me you know, calling on them more than once, maybe. But in every, you shouldn't have any scene where it's just one player who gets to do stuff. Everyone should get to. You should call on everyone in every scene and ask, okay, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you Absolutely. doing here? Just to make sure you're giving them the slot to do something. Yeah. This is especially the case in large parties because it's yeah. super easy to let one player get lost. You've got like three or four players, five players that are involved, and then you know. That sixth and seventh player might be like they even if they've just like, hey, that's fine, but they got this. No, you're there. What are you doing? Yeah. Maybe you're guarding the door. Maybe you guys are, you know, searching something while they're having this conversation, but you're contributing to the overarching scene in some way. And I think one of the things you want to do there is not just it's not just calling on them. I also think you want to encourage them to get involved somehow, right? I mean, no player character should be there as a spectator. You, you want to kind of nudge them like what, you know, if they don't know what they want to do, maybe nudge them about something creative they could do just so they get involved, because you don't really want any of your PCs to just be sitting there like clapping for the other for the rest of the team. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, everybody has to have some lines or that, then it gets into uh, kind of like a, a mood where it's expected that certain players are just going to do all the heavy lifting all the time. And then. The players who aren't involved aren't 
developing and having fun and the players are doing heavy lifting. What if one day when they want to start calling that in, your show's screwed. It's like, you know, you're, <laughs> well, you're, with you're... that too, I will say, I, I agree with you guys. And I think having that level of focus on everybody is important, but well, like we've discussed many, many times, some people do not want that spotlight on them. They completely are that audience member. So you still can find out what they want to do, but you know, if you have, if you've tried several times, you've gone to that well, and you kind of get a sense that that's just where they are. They, they're much more of the audience. They're enjoying being there. They're enjoying rolling dice. They're enjoying watching. Then respect that and honor that because you know you don't want to push them into that point where they are, where they become uncomfortable with it on the on the other way. You know, same thing for like you were saying, Thorne, that gut punch of. Oh, I really wanted to get involved, but I couldn't get a fucking word in edgewise. So I just checked out. You're like, oh, Jesus Christ. Okay, let me figure <laughs> this out for next time, right? That's that's like the opposite version of that, you know, where you push so hard. Some people aren't gonna be engaged like that. That's just that's just how it is. And that doesn't mean that they're not gonna want to come to the table and play. They're just not necessarily gonna get engaged in that same way. Well, you know, what I found with that though is that the player who doesn't want to be engaged often doesn't want to be engaged in the talking part of role-playing. Mm. They often don't want to play the character. They're not an actor. They're not, they don't want to, they don't want to do with a funny voice. They don't want to do the character <laughs> side of things. They're who doesn't people. want to do a funny voice? I have no idea. <laughs> who are these people? I've had at least four characters who had no interest in doing a funny, or four players who had no interest in doing a funny voice. But what I do find though, because I'm even thinking of some of the some of the some of the players we play with now, if you ask them what are they doing, they will usually come up with something their character is doing, even if it's an action. Oh, absolutely. Like, like the rogue, like so you can it doesn't I think it's really true. You don't want to push someone to kind of get in the conversations if they're not interested in speaking in character. And there is actually I think there is a pretty big swath of the player base who doesn't want to do that. Maybe it's yeah. not half, but at least a third get uncomfortable yeah. with that. But if you ask them, okay, what are you doing? They'll tell you, well, um, I'm over, I'm, I'm looking around, looking for a chance, looking for something that seems valuable. Or I'm over, um, I, I hide in shadows and keep an eye on the door. Yes, all of these things are rogue type actions. It does tend to be the rogue. Yeah. <laughs> Not we, always. It could be your barbarian too. The barbarian absolutely. usually looks intimidating. But they, they have the chance to say, to answer a question and say, I'm doing something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So you can encourage I mean, your players to, you know, if I'm losing you in terms of plots, if you have gotten oh. skipped over. Yeah, please speak up. If they're not in the moment in between scenes. And what you did was a check-in with your players. So, because believe me, you're going to miss this sometimes. You're like, yeah, everybody had fun. Like, and then one player's like, I didn't do a goddamn thing in that game. Like, well, <laughs> Whoops. Sorry about that. I thought you were doing that thing. That else was doing. Um, but then you do the check-in. And then you can make corrective changes at that. That's like the second uh you know, the second uh, quality check, if you will. So what's the best way to get a response to that? Because I feel like sometimes, like at the end of the adventure, like, hey, you guys had fun, right? Yeah, we all had fun. It was great. And I don't know that's always honest. What is individual the best way to get honest check in. Huh? There it is. Individual check-in. You, you, you throw out a, a blanket one. Yeah, you will get a blanket response. Like, yeah, it was over all right. And they could tell it was all right. But, you know, they could turn back to you and be like, you know, it was an all right game. But, hey. I sure would have liked to have done some role play, or I would have liked to take the opportunity to go do this that was in the game, and everybody pulled me away from it. And we've all been in that scene. We're yeah. like, hey, I want to do this, and they're like, grab you by your legs and drag you away from that plot point because <laughs> you know you've been outvoted. 
you know, it's one of the, it's funny because it's one of those things, you know, we like to think that the party's a democracy, but it's not really. It's really kind of a, it, it, you want everyone to get a chance to do their own thing, even if the rest of the party doesn't want to do that thing to some extent, right? No one spent too much time on it. But you want to give everyone that chance to do what they want to do, even if the if it's like six to one that they want to go another well, direction. I mean, look at every piece of pop culture and fiction and stuff that we pull ideas from. We've talked at length about this, about all the different influences that we have that come into this game, right? And how you have to separate out stories and novels and movies and role-playing games. Because while you can pull influence, they're going to be different. Because what's happening in literally every movie that we're, we talk about with this stuff, there is a platoon mentality where you have the person who's kind of in charge and then the people under them who are taking orders. And you do this. You know, think about the Avengers, right? Everyone goes, Cap, what are we doing? And he goes, I need you up here. I want a perimeter around here. Hulk, smash, right? He's controlling the situation. And that's awesome on film. Not so awesome at the table when Thorne goes, okay, everybody, this is what you're all going to do now, right? Like, that's not going <laughs> to work, right? Even though it might be an awesome plan, that's not going to work because it removes the the whole point of, of playing this game, right? Which is I get to do things that I want to do, you know? It gets more Tropic Thunder. I thought we were, <laughs> we were supposed to be a unit. Suck my Suck. unit. <laughs> I was a meme that we posted, or uh, that, that DM Dave actually posted on our on the on the site oh, I mean, earlier this week. <laughs> there are some memes that I post for us that I literally laugh out loud for. I I even tear up sometimes a little bit just because as I think about them as I'm posting them. That was one well, of Trump them. Thunder is one a great movie. Oh my and God. two, it is a great example of a dysfunctional D and D party making a fun campaign anyway. Mm, or fun adventure. That is actually incredibly astute yes it what is, is. Abe noonan's next article topic right there tropic <laughs> how to run the tropic thunder adventure yeah your players don't like each other their characters don't get along but here's how to still make it a great game yeah and they're not going to follow anyone's instructions but what happens you split the party that's what happens you, know? you, you split and, the party these these do their own stealth thing and then yeah uh, right you just a lot of them wind up dead, but it's okay. Cool. Now it's I'm fun. running four games a week instead of one. <laughs> and, we, and we have a compelling argument about what alignment and character class Tom Cruise's character was. Oh, God. Possibly one of his greatest roles. Lawful, lawful evil, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, I would say lawful evil. Maybe lawful neutral with evil tendencies. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Eh. Anyway, that's we're not we're not going there. We're, we're not going there. there. No, no. Stop what we can all agree on is he was the funniest dancer I've seen in uh, the last twenty years in TV. That that was his best role he's ever I think he's ever done. That's just there it is. Sorry. I think everyone on the Mission Impossible uh, team is weeping at hearing that, but I think you're I, right. Hey, sorry everyone. That's how it was. I mean, you know, yeah, Mission Impossible, right? There's a perfect example, right? Ethan Hawke. I'm we're setting up the big heist. The reason that, and this is a little off topic, but it goes back to what we're talking about. Everyone always wants to run that big heist caper in a game, right? They want to run the Ocean's Eleven. They want to do that kind of thing. The problem is, is those capers in the movies or, or novels or whatever are always planned out by the head guy who then tells you your character is going to do this. Your character is going to do this. Your character is going to do this. And there are times where that's helpful. 
You know, there are times in game where I will try to lean on the tactician of the party and say, what do we need to do here? Because we're going to die. But you can't do that all the time because people are going to be like, what the hell, dude? I want to go over here. I want to Tropic Thunder this thing. Well, first of all, all of our great capers are more like the great Muppet caper. Okay, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. They're not that cold and calculating. Um, I do remember a game when Thorne was running it. We had an air quotes tactician in there running things. And we actually, the, the tie-in for here is that we had a player that was, for whatever reason, he wasn't super engaged. And the plan was we were all being attacked by waves and waves of goblins and orcs and whatever. And we all fell to the left into this protective circle that was part of the terrain. And he rolled right. And then he was absolutely swarmed by dozens of <laughs> all kinds of monsters to eat the line. And I'm like, wow. Well, that happened. That was not the, the time for the naked bootleg. <laughs> oh, my God. That's the, that's not the time to run a hot route. That's, no, you, no, no you, made the wrong, you made the wrong slide adjustment. You yeah, ran into the blitz. Don't Omaha that. No, you never, <laughs> never Omaha that. That was like a red 32. That but is a great but What that's, that's going to do is it's immediately going to have all of those other players disengage. It's going to have exactly that opposite effect. Well, and uh, well, I mean, what, what Tony's talking about there too is also a great point in that the disengaged player isn't always just disengaged outside of combat. Sometimes it comes up in combat where you're like, "What the hell are you doing?" You know, and then it turns into it can very quickly turn into the player dead because they weren't really paying attention to the to the tactical situation. There. What was happening? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I did want to come back to something Dave was saying. Dave, are, are you suggesting that Whoa. your parties aren't smart enough to pull off an Ocean's Eleven heist? Not at all. Not at all. I've actually thought many times I would love to run. I mean, I don't, I think that every DM out there has been like, ooh, I want to run a heist. Um, because they're fun, right? You get to kind yeah. of like plan this whole big thing because that's literally D&D, right? We sit around and make these ludicrous fucking plans when instead of like, have you tried the door yet? You know, like <laughs> instead we're going to melt the handle and we're going to, you know, now, disengage. I think, I think the cart incident in Ravenloft taught us don't try the door. <laughs> yeah. Dave cured us of that. Yeah, someone um, opens the door without checking for traps and boom. Dude, literally the only time in board. the entire game that you guys didn't check for traps. I was like, okay, well, <laughs> cool. This gets to be used. Um, no, I would love to run a heist, but again, that would have to be something that you are engaging each player in. And that, I think, is where that can start to break down and why heist games don't always work out the way that you were hoping because you need that point person and you can't have the point person if you want everyone engaged at the table. Well, you can have the point. I'll tell you how you can have the point person. The the NPC wizards, the point person. One way to do it. One very legit way to do a heist in the D and D game is to have the NPC tell the players what they need them to do and lay out the plan. And then you can sort of, I use the term loosely here, sort of railroad them into the heist you want to have. That's one way to do it. Um, you could, it works that, too. that is a way I have found too. The one way I would probably want to want to actually start it would be uh, have either the NPC or one of the PCs be the person that's being the, the Danny Ocean, the person that's hiring the team. And now you hire your party, but you're hiring your party for the things you're not good at, right? So it's kind of back to our Call of Cthulhu idea. You have to find people that are good at certain things that you're not good at. So at that point, you would then want to have it be that person is relied on to 
okay, bomb expert, what do we do with the bombs to engage them, you know, to get them involved in, oh, this is what, like, let's go back to our other episode about Bixie the Boom Goblin, right? That's the person you hire if you want to blow shit up. And then you say, Bixie, what should we do, right? What do we need to get? We have not had a whole episode on my one Temple of Annihilation character yet. No, but we mentioned, we mentioned Bixie. (laughs) Not yet. In the future, maybe we'll see how cool he gets. Who was in a pregame? Yes. He's been in one pregame where he blew nothing up. He's very upset about it. But yeah, you could have the point person, but you need to, you need to push it back and have everyone involved in what is happening, you know, or like, uh, Geez, let's just go through all of them. Gone in 60 seconds, right? You have the point person. You have your NPC. But then you have all the teams that have to go out to get this set of cars, right? They have to go on their separate fetch quest. And they have to figure out how their quest and how their heist is going to go, you know? That's pretty wild. I mean, all I would say is I would advise that I wouldn't create this amazing crazy caper plan that involves everybody making all their die rolls all the time we got this this person's got to hide here wait for that guard to walk by yeah that's how that you know i mean i'm just envisioning a ravenloft party everything starts at dc 15 and goes up from there yeah (laughs) i think the heist only works if you don't make them roll very many dice no, only in certain situations. If your heist comes down to one roll that's like a 15 or higher, and you don't have like a super skill monkey on it, you're going to that that heist is not going to blow up in your face. Yeah. Now, I actually did do something. I was a player in a game where the DM did this really cool thing. So we uh, there was a huge MacGuffin that like every party in like the Omniverse wanted. So you're talking gods, angels, demons, they all wanted it. And our party came into possession of it. So we had to figure out what to do about it. And if we gave uh, it to anyone, no matter who we gave it to, we were screwed. Like everyone was offering us great stuff. But it's like, okay, do you want to go to them? Do you want to go to them? These guys, they don't see you. The demons certainly are not on the up and up. What are you going to do then? Although they're offering you a billion gold pieces. Like they're offering you literally as much money, like, like more enough money to buy the entire planet you're on. This is when you guys so, did the Sotheby's auction, isn't it? We did. But the yeah. so in the way that worked, it played out very much like a heist. The DM just said, okay, you guys are, you know, he let us decide what to do. We decided to auction it off. And then we spent literally an entire game session planning off how we were going to secure and pull off this auction. (laughs) And that was a time where the players made their own plan. And then the next session we did it. Yeah. But we had a very highly engaged group. Everyone was kind of, you know, like we were in college. Everyone's trying to be smart. Everyone's like kind of, college is that great time when everyone's smart enough to come up with cool shit and dumb enough to think it'll work. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so, so so that's pretty much how it came together, and we all like just sat around for literally a whole night talking about how are we going to pull this off and debating different options and debating different things. The DM did have an NPC guiding us a bit, like we had a couple NPCs at our disposal to get advice from, like and we had a security guy to give us advice on what the DM thought the security like would be needed, and so the DM had a mouthpiece in there to give us advice on specific things, but the whole plan, the party put together and that came out really cool. Honestly, that was one one of the most fun couple of sessions I've ever been a part of, but you need the party that's going to do it. You know, like like how many parties are going to sit around for an entire night just to plan out what they're going to do next, next session. Not this guy. No, I'm not about to. No, no. Tony's character would be very, he'd be upset about that game. You're having one encounter. It's a planning session for next, for, for, for next session. And that's it. Yeah, I think, I think Tony, you, you at this point in your career would probably hate that game. 
I, I would most certainly hate that game. Quest, the, question on that, actually. How many players were in that game, Tony? Um, Do you remember? I believe four players in the DM. There you go. Ball and that, that's yeah. part of it. That is definitely part of it because the level of engagement that you can get on the smaller side of groups. Yeah, because you're everyone is their older voices are, are more equally heard, I think. No, that's true. And when I think everyone came out of that feeling like they had equal input and came up with a really cool, smart plan. Yeah. I think we, we all felt that way coming out of it. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the kind of general engagement. Why don't we talk, why don't we get a little more into specific tactics of engagement? We, we talked about the tactic of tracking actions during the round by initiative order in order to make sure you call upon everybody and give everyone a chance to act in every scene. Some other advice, and actually this is going back to that article, Tony, you had said in here that skill challenges are your friend. So mm -hmm. how do you see skill challenges fitting in to help engage unengaged players? Because as you remember from Storm Kings, the uh, the way I ran these group skill challenges, there was different skills that can be used to solve certain parts of the problem that was all happening at once. So this wasn't about the rogue sat down and needed to roll 15 checks. I'm like, OK, I need an athletics or acrobatics, five of those checks. Who's going to do that? Then I need a nature or um, an insight check. Who's going to feel that? Then, you know, and then we go down the list and I made sure going into that, that I had people who could fill those spots. Then everyone just broke that up. They took their best shots on the field with it, and everybody was rolling dice, and it was a collective success instead of the rogue or the bar just being like, you know, I mean, Roderick had the skills to do almost all of that, but he couldn't do it all at once. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think the skill challenges, I, I remember you playing with them a lot during Storm Kings, and we've all had skill challenges in all our games at this point now. Uh, we've talked about why they are. And I like the the point, not about that it's a skill challenge, but that you are requiring multiple players to be involved. And you say, here are the roles that I need. Uh, I would even advance that even more into saying it with certain things. You can tell me a skill you would like to use, but you have to tell me how that's being utilized. You know, let's say you're escaping in the woods or something and somebody wants to use something that you hadn't thought of and they can give you a good reason as to why. That's a good way to engage players as well. But you you required every player to be a portion of that. Or when we had to run with the ship when we were in the race and we all had to be manning certain stations and making roles and all of this. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the beauties of the skill challenge, especially when you do like a group skill challenge like that. You can say everyone's got to roll a skill every turn and you can basically make sure everyone gets involved and then everyone has to get involved and play their role in completing that skill challenge. So like you said, so the skill monkey doesn't just run off. So the bard basically doesn't do everything. And that's really right, what we're yeah. talking about here, right? Right. The same way that, yeah, the barbarian is the best at combat, but that doesn't mean he's the, the, they're the only person that's entering into combat, right? Everyone is involved in combat because we all have certain skill sets, you know, so skills should yeah. be no different. You I'm just have some people the barbarian are... is best in combat. I mean, he doesn't really, he doesn't have offense. He can roll power than smite. Certainly well, can't you know, do area attacks like a wizard can. I mean, I'm trying to make a point. Yeah. <laughs> Fair point. But yeah, and I uh, barbarians at the progressive combat. I don't care about those other facts or abilities. <laughs> in the last Resistance to wizard. damage. That's what matters. Yes, that, that, is, is, that is a big part. That is longevity. Big part. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, Wolverine is not necessarily the best fighter in the whole world, but his ability to not die ever 
makes him the best at what he does, right? He's the like, best he is at what he does, bub. And what he does isn't pretty. Right, because the only way that he's good at what he does is because he just jumps headlong into, like, savers. You know, like, no one... <laughs> that's cool, man. No one else can do that, Wolvie. All right? Or he makes him the best. I remember back in the day that there was a really involved race scene that the DM put a lot of thought into. But the problem was one person was racing. So that's what kind of inspired this. I'm like, how do we do a race that I bring everybody together and still have tension? And I had like checkpoints. So there wasn't a single point failure at all. In fact, there was multiple opportunities to succeed or fail in each portion of the race when you were racing your spell jamming ships. And it could track. It wasn't arbitrary. Everybody knew based on this kind of mini game I created where your ship was in comparison to the other ship. You could try to do things that were higher risk, but if you screwed it up, you could go, you'd lose points in the movement or you'd go a little bit further. It was all, there was a bit of strategy, a little bit of luck. What did you think I said? Just because one time I had one player in a motorcycle race and the rest of you just got to build the bicycle, the, 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 uh, the motorbike for him. This is, this is stuck with Tony for like 20 years. Uh, no, I'm talking about pod racing, but that's another topic. Well, no, it wasn't the pod race. It was I guess it was in Star Wars. It was it was it was actually a motorbike race, like it was it was it was like a hover bike race. It was like a like like a like a, like a speeder race. Well, the point is that you put all this thought into it, and you yeah. like you mapped out this track, and it's this and it's that. And it was multiple laps, and it was like really great. But I'm like, all right, I'm riding this. I'm looking at the other players. I'm like, all right, well, I'm still on this. Well, I'm having fun, guys. How you how you doing over there? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot you were the driver in that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was actually, it's a good point, you know, because that was a problem with it. I mean, I had everyone do something, like everyone was involved leading up to the race, but then the race had one driver, essentially. Yeah. We're playing I mean, Star yeah. Wars, that's the George Lucas way, you know, one driver in the, in this, in the, whether it's a space, spaceship or a, or, or, or a pod or a speeder bike, usually Lucas does one driver inspired by F1 and by, by uh, World War II fighter, fighter reels and stuff like that. <laughs> that is his way. High tension, because George Lucas is not afraid to kill off his best characters. We all know this. <laughs> all right, I'm getting sidetracked. George Lucas often doesn't know who his best characters are. I was actually just going to say that the one point that Tony makes uh, in the article is one that I think he and I do a lot of. And it is a great way if it's something that you are wanting to do, because not everyone wants to. But character backstories and bringing those in consistently to keep not just adventure hooks, but what that's doing is engaging the player because they're going, Oh, Oh, this is, this is me. Oh, okay. Oh, that's someone that only I know. I know that person, that shadowy figure, or this person that we just met the, this Lord in the town is from my background. Oh boy. You know, now I'm engaged because I have to be, and now I can get the rest of the party engaged. It's just about spreading, as we've talked about with other episodes, it's about spreading that out. You know, if you are going to do that, you have to be doing it to each in some way. You have to be bringing them in in some fashion to engage them if you're using that as a method. Well, yeah, and that's uh, so from the that's one of the things that uh, Tony had said in the article. Use your players' backstories. Remember, they gave you free material. So basically using the backstories to fill out the story you have in front of you and also to engage potentially unengaged characters. Right, Tony? Yeah, honestly, I, I personally love it when a player gives me a character weakness that we're going to use throughout the game. Like Roderick's like always like wheezing and coughing 
or you get I say I have a nemesis. I'm like you're giving me a nemesis. Well, all right, <laughs> game on. There's a 100% chance this character is going to make an appearance in my game. No, it's I don't know who's letting you down. It's absolutely true because it's it gives not only it gives depth to it. It it makes the world feel more alive i think and that is one of the things that engages players is when the world tension is obviously going to and when the stakes are high but when the world feels more real and that i can affect it and that i am affecting it and things like backstory that i brought to the table will do that because i brought that no one else brought that you know when you when you go over to dinner somebody's house and you bring you know a dessert or something and they put out like 10 desserts and like yours is still in the fridge. Like that's not, that's you awesome. know, that's happening. Yeah. Dave. Right. So, you, you know, <laughs> if, but if they put your dessert out, you're like, Oh, Hey, I, and then everyone says, Ooh, this is really good. And you're like, thanks. I, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a whole rest. It's thank you. You know, but it, <laughs> it's, it's important. Right. So if somebody brings something to dinner, you know, put it out on the table. So, this is something where I tend not to do a lot with backstory, but you tell me, Dave, what would would you have liked to have seen me do more with Bean's backstory and the Woodstock Wanderers? Uh, so I enjoy the Woodstock Wanderers game very much, uh, and I appreciate your DMing style. If someone brought Bean to me, there are a lot of things I probably would have started to throw in. I would have thrown in the uh, royal lineage and his trying to be hidden as someone who's completely noticeable in the world. You know, that whole side of that stuff I probably would have played with a little bit. That's about the only thing that I really brought to you in terms of like things in the world that might be affecting it. But again, you you didn't you, you don't play with as you've said many times your style. You're not pulling a lot of backstory you're going here's the story going forward and that can inform your character's decisions but that's your character's decisions but for me yeah there are certain things i probably would have pulled in to you know build on that story but i would have also had to do that seven times more because it's been seven or eight players at times so you know but a good example is uh sir morton's backstory became the crux of the first tier of the adventure, let's say, right? And I think that's one of the reasons that Tom became so engaged in it is because he's like, well, this is my, this is my quest. Come on, come with me, friends, upon my quest, you know? The funny thing about that is, though, I put that part of his backstory in there. He didn't bring that. he, he, He brought who his character was to me. And then I had to, then I figured out, why are you adventuring? Why the hell is this old retire, this gray-ass yeah. paunchy guy. Okay. Oh, see? So, there so, I go. There I go. So, now, so, so basically, yeah, having to work that part of his story in was where I came up with Brother Maynard and all and, and the entire Brother yeah. Maynard's gone native, which is a way to drag the party into the problems with the snakes of the Alakir and find out about God and Athwa, the big tentacle monster, and all that stuff. Now, um, I will say, there are, there have been times where you have tried to bring in back backstories for world lore purposes and story lore purposes into the game, and the characters kind of go, huh? What do you mean? <laughs> or they just don't want to share that, and that can be difficult too. So you you have tried to at times, depending on what part of the uh, the story and where you're where you're seeing it, 
to pull that in to inform things. But then you'll you sometimes you'll get a like uh, the dog when it hears a sound it doesn't know. You know, huh? What do you mean? Uh, remember when I sent you that thing and you sent me the thing and the thing? And- Your Morgan's backstory makes perfect sense to me. I know it's going on with that. Your backstory, I have no effing idea. I think no, your character's dropped off by a goddamn spaceship. No, and, and, and that was like, kind of the, is this a chair? And what that's generally this? the point. I've that's never generally seen a chair the point. before. Yeah, that's generally the point of uh of of being. He's supposed to kind of be that just mysterious nomadic figure. That's generally the story. Um. There is stuff back there, but that doesn't necessarily come into play unless you're in a part of the world or that matters for that to come into play. Because for 10 levels, we were out in the nameless forest, right? Yeah. And that's the other so side that's of not going to like no one's backstory is really going to come into play because it was the nature of the adventure. And it was by design, as we discussed, because brand new group. Thorin's first 5e game that he's really running, or one of the first ones that he's really running. He wants to. No, really no that was it. That was that. That was the first 5e game. So yeah. you know, so it was by design to say, no, we're gonna, we're going to adventure. That's that's going to be this thing, you know. So which is absolutely fine. I have no issue because I can adjust my character to whatever that is. You know, I try to bring that so I can say, hey, I can, I can go wherever you want to go with this. Yeah, it's always been – so I think about those two games together. So basically, we launched – I launched – because it wasn't – because actually the one game Dave wasn't in. I launched two 5e games in quick succession in the same world with the idea that they would both kind of unlock different aspects of the world, and eventually maybe I'd bring them back together. Mm. In the Woodstock Wanderers, everyone got lost in the woods really quickly – I played a bit with Sir Morton's backstory, with, with the Paladin's backstory. I didn't want to play with anyone else's backstory in the beginning. And then as time came in, we had another a new player come in. We had another player that basically swapped out his character for someone totally new. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's things in there I've tried to play with. On the other side, in the other campaign, I played with, um, well, Erasmus, who is, who, is in our, who is in Woodstock Wanderers now. I played with his backstory to the extent of he was part of the King's Court of Wizards and he had a yeah. job. Yeah. So he actually, he literally was the NPC, the, the PC who hired the other PCs to come do the work with him. The one dude, I did have his, uh, you know, the, well, the dude, the, the Orion, who is the, who is the, um, a ranger, I believe, or maybe a thief. But basically, he was, thief. yeah. <laughs> but Orion, so, and I played with his backstory. His backstory was, he was, he, he was basically from Alvin royalty. And his family had been taken down by another royal clan. And I built that out. Count Ruffelgay, who you guys have, have met now, was his enemy. He plotted the downfall of his family. And now he actually has Orion's soul in a bottle. So, like, I played with that a little bit. Two of the other people I didn't really play with, they had a backstory that there's that some kind of twins being hunted by bounty hunters. I don't think I brought that in. And I played with the Druid's backstory. So the game where I played with a lot of backstory failed. that was the game that came apart um the game where i played with very little backstory is still going on so Um, negative reinforcement is what you're yeah and (laughs) and also as you mentioned in some cases i've had the situation where i've hit backstory on the player on with one of the players who doesn't really kind of want to get involved in the talking stuff and it has not been shared like it was definitely that player does not seem to enjoy having their backstory brought up so maybe it's just bad decision on my part 
Um, Cause I gave that new player a lot of information to give the party, which they were like, what? <laughs> they, yeah. they, they weren't really interested in sharing things with the party. So yeah, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's a balance. I think as much as backstory can be very cool and do neat things. I think you often wind up in a situation where not all your party members want to get involved with it. And when you start getting involved with one player's backstory, well, now you're kind of making it as uh, that show, the show is now, you know, that character centric, which is tricky. And it became an issue with Sir Morton too. Sir Morton was, I would argue too much of the main story for a long time because of the brother Maynard connection. Uh, and I didn't really intend that to play out quite that way, but it did. Um, and then when brother Maynard didn't, when he wasn't able to bring him back, when brother Maynard died, he took that super hard. Very anticlimactic. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we had a whole, I mean, it wasn't just him. We had a whole party blow up. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. Backstories. Nah, nah. <laughs> I, I, I heard backstories blow up in my face too many times. Too much tension in the woods for too long. That's my final answer. I think you guys need matching tattoos. I survived 10 levels in the woods. When I was uh, not with Backstory, I was talking about character traits and, you know, uh, issues, yeah. this is things like that. It's interesting is because what, so Dave gave himself a problem. So he had that low constitution. He was dying. He, he was cursed. I would not throw that all over the place. Like I would paint the walls of that information in my campaign, but I would put it out there periodically and the other story role plays uh, playing based characters would pick up on that and that became a really that made them interested in him that was his hook what is going on with him is he practicing necromancy that's weakening his body is he nursing an injury what did he do in the middle of the night that he's you know he's bleeding from his no- nose and mouth why well, I will say, I I think that goes a little bit both ways, too, because I got the very real sense when I brought that, particularly that character, where I decided to play Khan as a dumpstat. Um, bold. <laughs> Famous last words. What the right, way yeah, of so, is Dave? Bold. Yeah, so I, so I decided to, because of the... The characterization I had, I was like, this is this is fun to play with. Like, if he dies, he dies, you know, but it's fun. This is a fun story to play out kind of thing. And Tony has said many times that a lot of the times he gets into the certain it's it's one group generally that you're with. And after a while, it just becomes the same. And, they're you know, they go, I've seen this before. Show me something new. And you go, oh, my God, this is the same, same, same. When I brought Roderick to him, I think it gave him the same way and it kind of gave him a jump start. And he was like, holy shit, like this guy wants to really like play with like a story like oh, I, I can do things with this. So I think it was a little bit of both ways in terms of engagement, at least the way he responded when I first sent it to him. <laughs> Actually, that was DM engagement because great about that. The crap I'm used to dealing with is. Yeah, I read this one article that's technically canon. I could be half Kryptonian. I want to start with this character. <laughs> and I don't take damage from blunt or edge weapons that aren't at least plus two. That's okay, right? Like, that's the kind of stuff I'm getting. And usually people are trying to weasel into their backstory. And you're right. like, yeah, I'm actually popping up blood. And I'm like, sold. Let me slap <laughs> a stamp on that. I, uh, there, I have a clock ticking that I am unaware as to how much time I have. I love Want to play yeah. with that? <laughs> Is there any story involved with that, maybe? The rest of us are like, great. We're, we're, we're here to try to make sure to Dave save, doesn't die. To save Roderick, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Protect Roderick. He's always in the back. Never attack the back. I'm afraid until, he killed Roderick you know, 20 times. Until he became, he be, he started to, to come into his own about, yeah. you know, 
11 levels in, you know. So. He was always powerful. He was. He was just, he was a glass cannon of yeah. the utmost, like a Fabergé cannon. But when he could actually, when he started increasing his other abilities, got some items to offset things, when he became like a heavier hitter, that was really, I felt that was not, that was not just stat development. That really counted as character development. Yeah. Like you started off and like now you're somewhere clearly else. No, I, 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 the, I thought that was it. Even if the first constitution boosting item we tried to give him wound up with another character. Did it? <laughs> yeah, Tony yeah. threw there, there was a ring of constitution or something that Zhang wound up picking up and Tony's like, ah, <laughs> oh, oh, try not to kill uh, Roderick here. Democracy <laughs> at best. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, like, I can really use I this, but this it looks so nice against my fur. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jang's like, I'm the one, I'm the one standing between him and who wants to kill him. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. You know? Partially, I would say I would say his sister Mina did that even more than Jang did. But yeah, in the beginning, and then that was interesting too because uh, that was a good that uh, that was interesting in terms of development and engagement because we were super engaged in the beginning in that way because we brought in these twins, you know, the, and blah blah blah. And she was yeah, an Roderick S- and Mina were twins. Yeah. Yeah, and she was my protector, right? She that was her role, and that's how she played the character for several levels. And then I started to kind of come into my own. So we had that story development, stat development, however you want to put it. And Bonnie was left with Mina with like, okay, I'm not sure where to go with this now. Like, so she was like in this weird, like the woods of like, okay, now this character is like kind of lost their identity in a way. I need to find a new identity, you know? And she started to investigate other things, but... Yeah, who did she find? The Raven Queen. Raven Queen, <laughs> which we never did finally do because I I did not uh, I did not trust that, but maybe uh, one. So, I trusted the evil ring of all to instead. Yeah, it's like <laughs> the Raven ring. Queen. There's a way to use her to break this curse because your girlfriend's character in a game literally is a curse breaker. You have a curse. That's a thing. You need to break this curse. He's like, no, f that dark ring of power. I actually saw an article that's like one of the most terrifying items in like the D&D world right now. And Roderick the Bard has. Oh my God, what is happening in Neverwinter right now? Oh, what's that? The player shows the item of power instead of safety. We've never heard that story in D&D before. so weird. Never. Yeah, that's where D&D really, really, you know, divorces itself from Lord of the Rings. Because in D&D, Galadriel and Gandalf both would have been like, magic ring. Neat. Yay. <laughs> I'm yeah. unstoppable now. <laughs> but, you know, as we're talking about this, I mean, okay, so this is a bit of an aside. You know, we've, we've kind of gone on, gone off into player yep. engagement stories based on our backstories, based yep. on our stories. But the point here is when you have a group that is engaged in the stories and the backstories like this, it really does pay off with player engagement. You know, people aren't sleeping through those episodes. People are are, are are tuned in and paying attention and noticing what's going on with themselves and with the and with the other and with the other players. And that's which is a great point. You know, I don't know what makes other than just the other than just the players involved, I couldn't easily tell you what makes that kind of game versus the kind of game where backstory backfires. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's just kind of the group you have. Yeah, that you exactly. It's the group. I mean, you can put forth a strong presentation. That is a very significant element of the game. But who you're rolling with in your party, who shows up at your table, is is also a very significant element as well. 
that you know, you know some players have given us uh dms giving us feedback and like this would work in my group this would not work in my group exactly it's your group one that- uh one point that i think is helpful if you are playing around with the idea of backstory or things that are that are germane to that character in the overarching story one way which i was playing with with strahd especially earlier on because i wanted to it was a way in which i started to play with additional plot points in the adventure to say hey there's other stuff out here in barovia there are things there are stories and there are items and there are things that you need to get or might want to get out there and i started to pepper the group with them individually as well one of the ways i did that when we were in the uh Blood on the Vine Tavern with the sisters, and I had the whole kind of vision. You know, she had some sort of like spell casting thing where she created a vision in each of your minds as she was telling this story that told a different story to each of you that I I texted out to each of you individually that only you received to then pepper the Amber Temple, to pepper Babalai Saga, to pepper, you know, to to throw these things out, the the whole Cavani thing, right, for Hawk, to to send these things out so that the players were like, oh, I have this little piece, and it it fits out there somewhere. And generally, some of you started to play around with that in terms of sharing it with others. Uh, some held on to it for a little bit until it kind of came up. But I thought that that was a way that you can do it uh, individually to pepper out through that adventure to kind of send feelers out. And I thought one spot where that really paid off and we ran into issues in Storm King's Thunder was the whole idea of why do we go do the grand tour? Why don't we just skip to the end? Mm. which came up as a discussion in Storm King's Thunder we've talked about, and we, you know, how we in the end wound up deciding to go to every kingdom, but we had a discussion about, hold on, why are we, Why is my character going to every kingdom? Let's just skip to the ordning and wrap this up. Yeah. And one of the things that's different in Curse of Strahd was we were each being tempted actively through the game with, oh, you want to go to the Amber Temple. Oh, look at these riches you can get there. So, like, there was more emphasis on what you could gain by going to each of those places, and there was more teasing and and those things did drive more engagement with the grand tour style of quest. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I do think there's some serious hilarity would have ensued. We're like, okay, we just conquered the, the hill giant hole. We're going right to the storm giant. They're not that much tougher, right? Yeah. Okay. That that have been some rolling up. I would say talk. so. Even you know we talked about player motivations last week in the last episode last week. And that was that was born a little bit from a conversation Justin Alexander is having on Twitter where he's going through yeah. Storm King's Thunder and doing a read and talking about the issues. And he brought that up as an issue. He also brought up that your NPC kind of is like you have a really high powered NPC who kind of sucks. But Tony took care of that by swapping himself in for that NPC. <laughs> so Erasmus took the place of what is his name? Hagnus or Hangnail or whatever he is. <laughs> Hagnus. Hashnag. Hagnus. No, actually. Uh, well, it's interesting that he's a frost giant who, I mean, talk about the DMPC right there. Holy crap. This freaking, and I didn't really use him. So I, I, I can't say how this would have fit in as cleanly, but at, at a look, because I already had my own plan. So I just want to say I didn't analyze this too deeply, but at a glance, he's an effing frost giant who's got a super friggin' magic axe. Like, look at a Frost Giant's axe damage. Yeah, this is much more. 
And he's got like plus three fucking plate mail. I'm like, oh, here's a DMPC. I'm awesome. I'm being awesome. How are you guys doing? Get, get and when, stuck you. And we like you in essence meet that person at like level three or something, right? I, I want. No, no, he pops in. I, oh, it's, I think it's after you do your episode with the towns. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like I mean, any self-respecting party should should just try to steal his armor while he's asleep. <laughs> if you wear his, if you can wear giant size, uh, yeah, you got an artificer that can. Uh, or, or the artificer yeah, can walk right into that armor and be like, and he can be like, you stole my armor. He's like, what? Your armor no fit, goblin. <laughs> this, this different. This different armor. <laughs> it's totally uh, different. You know, this doesn't look anything like your armor. You know, don't be silly. This couldn't even fit on your hand. <laughs> All right, guys. So we've been talking about this for, for, for a good long while now. So why don't we wrap up with some final thoughts on keeping engagement high at your table? Well, this is a little, you know, uh, tried and true method. All the things we summed up basically was partially about knowing the audience. And that cannot be overstated. The value of are these people that don't care about their backstory? Are they going to want you to address them during the game and say, hey, these are things you're good at? Hey, here's something the rogue, the mage, the bard, the warrior notices. Um, with that, even if you have a skill expert uh, on the team, give everybody else their chance to be involved in these scenes, not specifically because of die rolls. And I know the mechanics can kind of butt heads with that, where it's like, hey, I'm sorry, um, I'm a strength character. That doesn't mean just shut up and let the pretty people do their talking, because <laughs> that, that that's really not a whole lot of fun. Um, not cinematically, not to promote player engagement. And honestly, if you uh, have a large group, just make sure you're checking in with everybody. It's really easy to miss somebody. You want to kind of go down the line, make sure someone's doing something. Even if they want to pass, give them the options. They don't really feel like you just completely brushed over them and let like your three actors, you know, steal the show. Yeah. I would uh, go back to my first point, which I took from Mike Shea. I would say really focus in on a strong start, whatever that might mean. It might mean some sort of in media res thing. You're right in the middle of the action. You're in a combat. Something happens. Orcs attack. Or it could be you wake up at your campsite because you long rested, but use it. Use a strong start, in essence, to focus on the players. Always focus in on the players, like Tony was just saying, and do it in a way that each person, okay, you, to my immediately to my left, what are you doing? The next person, what are you doing? Even if it's something, like I said, you're waking up at the camp, because they have to do things in the morning. Make them answer questions. Well, make them. <laughs> Offer them. Make them. <laughs> Force them to fucking play the game right now. So <laughs> allow them the opportunity to answer questions about their characters. I'm going to actually throw this in here because I thought it was a great article and it's something I'm going to start playing with. It's another Mike Shea thing because the guy has some really brilliant ideas, but he has this whole list of what he calls campfire prompts. But what it is, it's, it's a list of things that it's questions that will allow the opportunity for players to answer things, to engage them in not only their character, but in the world and the story as a whole. And it's ways in which they can start to engage with that story, which for me, I think is what's going to drive player engagement, not just character engagement, but player engagement, because they're playing the game. So even if it's 
one whole session of planning out the Sotheby's auction or one whole session of one combat, those can still be some of the most engaging and fun sessions if everyone is involved and everyone has a seat at the table. So I would say strong starts, but really focus on the players. Yeah, I think it's funny. It's like a little Freudian there. That, you know, I got into the make them answer. You know, what are we, gonna, answer. <laughs> we say get it again, you know, don't force them, let them be comfortable. But when yeah. push comes to shove, when well, push comes to shove, DMD is going to make it. Head, shove it in the hood and say, you're going to buy this fucking car. I'll break he's your gonna, head. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to put the question to you. He's going to put it to you, put it, put it to you with a, with a, with a fingernail rippers. Yeah. <laughs> Take him an offer. He can't refuse. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for me, really, you know, one of the big things that comes out of this entire conversation is it really is about your players, you know, and you understanding what your players want and how to keep them interested in the game. On the one hand, you know, one way to look at that is you can't take any of your players for granted and you got to make sure that, you know, you're catering to everyone at the table. Or the other way to look at it is maybe you got to curate the group that melds best with your play style. It can be either one, but, you know, keep that in mind. You know, it's going to be you can only get people to engage with the kind of type of play they want to engage with. I mean, it's a game, you know, so we can't actually put the question to them with fingernail pliers. You actually, all you can really do, like Dave said, is give them the opportunity, but it is important. Give them, give everyone an opportunity in every scene, call on them, ask them what they're doing. Don't necessarily make them talk. Cause you yeah, have plenty of players don't like talking in the funny voice and doing the role play thing. Even though some players live for it like Dave. Heresy. Heresy. <laughs> Well, it's funny because I'm the guy who says I, I don't like talking in a funny voice, and I'm the guy who made Bixie the Boom Goblin. I mean, <laughs> who talks in nothing but a funny voice. I uh, feel like my constant voices maybe assisted with that. I don't know. I like to think that in my deepest, darkest thoughts. Maybe uh, I first debuted my Goblin voice actually in the other in the other game in the world, the one that didn't work out. That was where I first debuted my Goblin. Voice. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, the kind of the kind of slobbering. Pixie make go boom, that kind of thing. Yeah. That, that, that came from the other game first, actually. But you, I was playing with you at the time. But yeah, it's the important thing is making sure everyone has the opportunity to do what they want to do. And that means, you know, yeah, going around, calling everyone in every set, in every uh, scene, asking them what is their player doing, not necessarily forcing them into role-playing the way you think they should be role-playing, but giving them the opportunity to make a decision for themselves of how do they want to engage with this. But at the same time, never really buying that no one wants to engage or that someone never wants to be engaged. Keep coming back to them. You know, it's just just keep giving them the opportunity because if they don't have the opportunity, you can wind up knocking someone out because they feel like they didn't get the chance to do what they wanted to do. So you have to keep checking in with them. And not every player is going to be assertive about that like the three of us tend to be, because I think the three of us kind of manage to do whatever we want to do in the games we're in, you know, and that's not the way all the players are. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. we are definitely, you guys are definitely some of the more assertive players. I'll say that. <laughs> it comes with DMing, I think, you know. It does, yeah. You're like, hey, I know I can do a bunch of things, and I want to do all of them right now. Because <laughs> I only have to focus on this one guy now, so watch Woo-hoo. out. <laughs> I can only do what this guy can do, but there's so many things. Let me grab that book. That's why the first player, the first character I, went, I played when I was I was pl- uh, playing a PC in 5e for the first time was the Moon Druid. I'm like, ooh, I can play any animal? Fantastic. <laughs> Let me study my animals so I know what my options are going into each game. Because that's, you know, you get you get a high you get high engagement players and low engagement players. Yeah. And I think we've covered a lot of ways to uh, help your players be more engaged at the table and, and for you to keep the group more more focused on what's going on and more involved in what's happening. And like we said, check out DM Tony's article. It's from September. 
six ways to get everyone at the game table more involved. We have not talked about all the six ways here today, but I think we went much deeper on several of them and uncovered some other ground on it. But if you want more, go check that out from September 22nd. All right, guys, that was a lot of fun. I think uh, I feel very engaged. It's a nice conversation. I am incredibly engaged right now. Engaged. Peak engagement. <laughs> As actually, on my final thought, I did pull up a Harshnag stats. Uh, he, he's pretty balanced. I mean, he's got plus three plate mail, 204 hit points, a legendary <laughs> resistance. And if he's fighting humans, that'd be pretty crazy if he was. His normal 3d12 plus his bonus is axe turns into a 5d12. Jesus Christ. All right, so let's, let's, let's call him what he is. He's a beat the player stick. He's, you know, we don't want to go save the ordning. Really, son? Really? <laughs> Oh my god. Like yeah, like that's all the worst ways to make the DMPC. <laughs> like <laughs> that's all the the things we say don't do are all in one character right there. Like, yeah, so I'm curious if people say he sucked because why he overshadowed everybody? I I, I can't um, imagine. Actually, yeah, no, that was that was the the conversation of was um based on that. The idea that you're bringing in a DMPC who is phenomenally more powerful than the players who can solve all these problems himself if the players can solve them. And, you know, I mean, like uh, you just described, he has a plus three stick of player beating if he wants to. No, no, it's only plus one. It just kills humans on contact. <laughs> Literally, yeah. Gert's great axe. Look it up. It's real, real uh, charmer there. Yeah, next time I play a barbarian, I want one. It's big. Dude, with my hit points in that game, that would have killed me outright for like nine levels. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's why Tony called your hit points a bold move. Yeah, that's Jesus Christ. (laughs) I'm like, I see, uh, Dave. Uh, He feels I'm uh, the last game was way too easy. All right. He's self-imposed penalties. All right. Well, the last time I played a high deck slow con character was the bard I rolled out in the second edition game of many deadly critical misses. And he died. He died fast. Yeah. Fast and furious with an arrow in the throat. Yep. Arrow to the back of the head from his from his ally. Actually, I think it was in the throat because he was in the back. And somehow this magical arrow did a U-turn and shot him in the throat. No, no. We all know second edition critical house rules, critical misses defy all physics yeah. i mean uh, the swords losing uh, getting getting uh lost uh, you know mid-swing bouncing off a rock and then popping up and stabbing someone like directly in the face between the eyes i mean completely <laughs> perfect for fight choreography i would say yeah, it, forensics experts be damned dying dying to to a to an ally's critical miss for the third time is a guaranteed way to lose player involvement in your game Good wrap up. Good wrap up. All right. That guys, thanks a lot for, uh, for, for, for joining me here and talking about this. And thank you all for listening from home. Uh, This has been another episode of three wise DMS. We've been growing really fast because of all your support. Thank you very much for that. If you want to support the show more, please hit that five-star rating button. Give us a good review. Tell your friends. All that really does help us get out there and get the message out there and signal boost. And you just try to reach as many DMS as we can. We would love to hear the problems you're having DMing. We deal with a lot of listener questions right on the show. So if you have anything you'd like to hear us talk about, please send it in to threewisedms at gmail.com. Go to our website, threewisedms.com, and put it in the What's Your Problem field. Or come talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're active in all those social media networks. That's it for this week. We'll talk to you next time. Three Wise DMs.